Compassionate leadership means that you respect the dignity and the humanity of the people you work with, you acknowledge their context, and you also understand that treating them in a humanistic way, not just because it's the right thing to do, but it's the best way to approach your own bottom line. I think that we're all born with compassion and there's a lot of research looking at very young children and their tendencies to help, to recognize emotional distress in others and respond to it. Of course, this gets impacted by trauma, but I think we're all born with capacity for compassion. And we also know from the research and from decades of looking at the impact of training that it's something people can improve in. So some people do have different lower set points of emotional intelligence or compassion, but that doesn't mean they're stuck with those. And then the other thing that is really important to keep in mind is that our environments matter a huge amount. So if we're working in the context of an organization that values compassion, that we see it modeled in leadership, then it's much easier to behave that way. If we're in an organization where everything's pitted as an internal competition and leaders don't model compassion, it's gonna be a lot harder for people to show up that way. I'm your host, Michelle King, joined by Kelly Thompson, and you're listening to The Fix, a podcast that shares the stories of remarkable people who are innovating and taking action to advance equality in the workplace and beyond. Over the next five to 10 years, jobs will change due to technological advancements like artificial intelligence, robotics, the internet of things, 3D printing, and nanotechnology. While these advancements will create a range of new jobs in industries yet to be created, many of today's jobs will still exist. They will just look a little different and probably involve working with machines. Consider the field of medicine, where medical doctors are primarily responsible for correctly diagnosing and treating patients. In the future, it may be algorithms making these diagnoses with remarkable accuracy. Computers could be used to make recommendations about the best treatment. Artificial intelligence could replace pharmacists, and in some cases, robots could even carry out surgery. Doctors won't disappear, they won't diagnose or prescribe medicine in the same way they do today. Their role will change as they'll need to comfort and manage patients to a greater extent. Just like this example, in the immediate future, advancements in technology won't necessarily replace all jobs, but it will alter the way most of us work. The parts of our jobs that are routine, administrative and repetitive will likely be replaced by technology. According to the consulting firm McKinsey, for 60% of all jobs, at least one third of the activities can be automated. Like doctors, employees will be freed up to undertake new tasks in new ways, which will require new skills. The World Economic Forum's 2016 report, The Future of Jobs, states that overall, social skills like persuasion, emotional intelligence, and teaching others will be in high demand across all industries compared to technical skills like programming. This requires a new way of leading. 
the more traditional and transactional command and control style of leading is being replaced with a more transformational, democratic, caring, and inclusive approach to leading. For employees to thrive in the future, they need to know that their unique talents, capabilities, skill sets, identities, and perspectives will be valued. They need leaders who are compassionate and can help them navigate the inevitable changes to come. May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And you don't need me to tell you that we're also over a year into a global pandemic which has touched all of our lives. With so many people juggling a work-life pandemic-consumed balancing act, leaders are having to step up like never before. Right now, we need leaders who can help employees handle the emotional impacts of remote working, childcare, sick dependence, isolation, and the mental health challenges associated with the pandemic. And leaders are doing all this while carrying their own personal challenges and steering their businesses through the unpredictable storm. To navigate COVID burnout at work for themselves and their people, leaders need to know how to demonstrate kindness and compassion. That's what we're going to talk about today with Dr. Leah Wise. Leah is a Stanford Graduate School of Business lecturer and has focused her studies on compassionate leadership and the positive effect it has on organisations. In this episode, Leah will unpack what compassionate leadership is, how we can develop it, and why it really is the future of leadership. Compassionate leadership means that you respect the dignity and the humanity of the people you work with, you acknowledge their context, and you also understand that treating them in a humanistic way, not just because it's the right thing to do, but it's the best way to approach your own bottom line. I think that we're all born with compassion and there's a lot of research looking at very young children and their tendencies to help, to recognize emotional distress in others and respond to it. Of course, this gets impacted by trauma, but I think we're all born with capacity for compassion. And we also know from the research and from decades of looking at the impact of training that it's something people can improve in. So some people do have different lower set points of emotional intelligence or compassion, but that doesn't mean they're stuck with those. And then the other thing that is really important to keep in mind is that our environments matter a huge amount. So if we're working in the context of an organization that values compassion, that we see it modeled in leadership, then it's much easier to behave that way. If we're in an organization where everything's pitted as an internal competition and leaders don't model compassion, it's going to be a lot harder for people to show up that way. According to the Caring for Change 2017 report by the King's Fund, Compassionate leadership really includes four things. Inspiring vision and strategy, positive inclusion and participation, enthusiastic team and cross-boundary working, support and autonomy for staff to innovate. This research study found that compassionate leadership activities have many positive outcomes. Employees are more likely to find new and improved ways of doing things if they feel listened to, valued and supported as this provides a sense of psychological safety. Innovation is enabled through compassionate leadership as it encourages collaboration and inclusion. Here Leah shares more on the link between compassionate leadership and positive outcomes for organizations. 
If we want people to be able to show up to one another and feel trust, feel valued, feel a sense of belonging, feel safe to express not just what's not working for them in their work environment, but also what might be going wrong in processes. So, you know, exactly on point with quality control work, we know for safety and when there's issues with products and timelines, psychological safety has everything to do with whether people speak up early or whether they hide because they're afraid they're going to get thrown under the bus if they surface a problem. So a big part of what leads to psychological safety is an environment where people are expected to welcome to share experience and counterpoints. And there's a lot of research around what enables that candor, also that the leader sanctions behavior that is at at cross purposes with safety and compassion. So if someone's displaying microaggressions or bullying in the group, the leader doesn't just ignore it. They call it out. They address it. There's responsibility. That's one of the critical ingredients for psychological safety as well. So the way that I talk about compassion, it's not just that we say yes and, oh, you, you know, you want this. Of course you can have it. You can't hit the deadline. No problem. We're, we're talking about organizations. Like there are needs that need to be met, but you have the courageous conversations, you have integrity, you let people know when they're off track, when their job is in jeopardy, you give them opportunities if it's about them not meeting um, expectations, you let them know that. So these are all components that the compassion and the psychological safety really come together. And then, you know, I think great point you're raising about the pandemic And one of the real challenges is the kind of organic places where we check in with each other over coffee or between meetings when we're waiting to get set up. We don't have those when we're working remotely. And even people who are working in person because of COVID regulations, there's more space. You have PPE, there's less natural kind of connection time. So one of our recommendations is making sure that you create that space intentionally because it's not going to just happen. And when we have meetings by Zoom or we have meetings where we're distanced from one another, we get more tactical. So we have to carve out the time that we would just automatically have before. How is your weekend? How's your family? Oh, you look upset. What's going on? Those kinds of things. We have to put structures in place to recreate them in this new context. According to a 2012 study published in the Academy of Management, responding compassionately can be understood as having four components, attending, understanding, empathising and helping. So leaders can demonstrate compassion by paying attention to employees, listening to their concerns and demonstrating empathy, and by taking action to support employees with overcoming or navigating daily challenges. I often start there with leaders saying, you're probably not as effective as you think you are at masking your reactions. They're probably seeping through and you're creating more stress if you're not sharing context for them because of the negativity bias, everyone's going to imagine that what you're upset about or reacting to is about them because we all have this default to think it's all about us and something bad about us that nobody's telling. So if you really want to cultivate some of these communication skills like, Here's the story I'm telling myself. Can you like 
you know, let me put this out there and have other people weigh in, or how are you interpreting this situation? Or I am feeling frustrated in narrate what people probably are already observing anyways. But I think the big thing about getting people to incrementally get more vulnerable is like practice doing that and then getting feedback. So you need to have trusted confidants on your team. So if the three of us were a team and I'm going to share something with you in the context of the meeting, it'll be really helpful for me afterwards if I can say, hey, Michelle, can I get five minutes with you and then have a conversation? Like, how did that land with you? Did you feel like I was dumping on you emotionally when I told you? I'll I'll give a very real example. Right now, my mother-in-law's in hospice and in her final days. And I've been calibrating in all of my interactions. I have three little kids. So I'm kind of like on call with needing to pick them up because I'm trying to, you know, let my husband be with his mother as much as possible. But it's like always a judgment call if bringing this stuff up is going to give people context for maybe I'm a little bit like more checking texts than I typically would when I'm in meetings and so forth. But I've been finding it's there in the room either way. And if I narrate it, then people know it's not that I find them boring or I think I'm too good to be focused on this conversation. And, And it also then importantly, gives them the opportunity to be compassionate, which like we all want to not just receive support. It feels really good to offer support. And so I think that's the other thing. Leaders are often really comfortable with being the supporter, the savior, like the hero to everybody around them, but recognizing that that actually needs to be reciprocal and your team might feel really good that you trust them to let them in. And we all need to like get feedback, especially if we're emotionally distressed. It's hard to know in the moment, like, am I sharing an amount that's like burdening the other person or maybe even giving context, like just saying like, I need to vent for two minutes. I'm super overwhelmed. Can you just listen to me? I don't expect you to solve this and then we can move on. Communication is critical to demonstrating compassion. It includes practicing deep listening, empathy, and communicating to understand and support employees beyond just words. Here Leah shares how to develop a compassionate approach to communication. Start experimenting for people who are listening and this feels impossible. You don't need to do it in your 10-person meeting with the most high-stress environment. Like maybe find some places that you can practice doing this. And and like Michelle is saying, like bringing someone, working with your coach to practice identifying where would this be, feel like a comfortable risk and practice even how you're going to say it and then have someone to debrief with. One of the things that's really real for those of us who are working remotely that I just want to acknowledge is like when we have a hard conversation in person and let's say a meeting and let's say, again, the three of us are a team and I really disagree with Kelly's perspective on whatever the topic is. I think I'm completely in the opposite camp. So we can have a whole discussion and debate. And then at the end of the meeting and be like, hey, Kelly, let's go get a cup of coffee, right? And go like recognize that it's not Kelly I'm angry at or trying to undermine. It's just these are two positions and it's our job to play them through for the quality of our shared work. But when we're working remotely, we have that meeting and Kelly and I can be disagreeing vehemently and then boom, we log out and there's no natural way to repair that if or find out even like, is Kelly mad at me? 
Or, you know, did she take it personally? Or maybe I went too far when I was passionately expressing my perspective and I was rude. So I think it's even more important to acknowledge it's really awkward, especially for having a hard conversation to just like leave the Zoom meeting and then be left with like this hall of mirrors wondering how we were perceived. So I think, again, this becomes like a similar thing of like reaching out to people proactively, asking for a quick touch point and just to check in on tone and relationship and get feedback. About, you know, what could I do differently next time? Because there will be a next time because we're both passionate professional women that we disagree on a topic because we work closely. But like, how can we do that better so it doesn't damage our relationship? relationship, that kind of thing. If we wrote the recipe for the culture of any organisation, the first ingredient on the list would always be leadership. Leaders are to organisational culture what flavour is to a recipe. Because the culture of any organisation is a direct result of its leaders, that's why it's so crucial that leaders behave in a way that's aligned to what the organisation values. What leaders focus on, talk about, pay attention to, reward and reinforce all set the standard for how employees should behave. It's no good bringing diversity into an organisation if your workplace culture devalues difference, because if you haven't also baked inclusion in, this is a recipe for failure. We can hire with diversity in mind, but if we don't create an environment where people can connect across difference, then inclusion has failed and we don't get to leverage the benefit of having these diverse perspectives. And I think it's really tricky because part of inclusion means you it relies on the psychological safety of people being able to say when they're experiencing what they believe is unconscious bias or microaggressions or worse, to be able to voice those in a team environment and feel like they're not going to get blowback if they do voice these things. And, and sometimes we just don't know. I mean, we all have stereotypes we use in, we've internalized. There's no getting around that. But what we don't know is how our behavior impacts others. I remember there was an example for me kind of early in my career after grad school, I was working in an R&D company that focuses on resilience. And I was on a team with a young woman who was right out of college. And then it was a couple of folks who were around my age and we all had young kids, like very young kids at the time. So a lot of the like interstitial conversations would come back to like mom life. And at some point we got feedback that the young woman right out of college felt excluded. And she was an African-American uh, woman. And, you know, I think it was just like the combination of there are very few African-American people in that organization. The topics that we kept coming back to, she didn't relate to, but we didn't realize it. First of all, we were all so sleep deprived, right? So like there's that factor that you're just like bit dense. But I think some of what you're saying with with inclusion, that it can sometimes be the compounding of just not recognizing that our go-to topics and the things that are comfortable for us are landing differently for other people. And where do you create the opportunity to get that feedback? So at the end of the day, it was amazing that she gave it to us. Of course, that's like an example that's, you know, not complex in certain ways. And I see this all the time in teams I work with and, you know, in organizational life that, that people can feel excluded 
from leadership roles. You can't see what you can't be and they don't see themselves. And there's just a lot that we need to get into and talk about if we're going to fix it. But to have those conversations, people need to care about one another. They need to believe that they're cared about. You need to have the tools to do it in the context. So yeah, context is huge. Connection and compassion are critical during a crisis, which is full of uncertainty. Leaders need to find a way to draw on the collective knowledge, skills and capabilities of the diverse people who work for them if they want to innovate, adapt and create. The problem is that workplace cultures don't work for everyone. The pandemic has detrimentally impacted women in the workforce. In 2020, 2 million women left the workforce in the United States. Here, Leah shares why compassionate leadership and company culture is critical to advancing gender equality. Women are holding a lot and they feel like it's untenable. And if you're just making a very simple decision, if if let's say you are a family that has a male income and a female income, statistically speaking, the female income is going to be lower. So just doing the math and you're like, one of us has got to stay home. There's a logic to saying it's the person who's earning less money, right? So that's what is happening en masse. And so I think when we're talking about burnout in the pandemic now, like, you know, kind of moving to what I imagine is a logical next step of what can we do normalizing, flexibility, looking at benchmarks, anything that can be um, dialed down or made flexible, that we do that. A lot of organizations are bumping out performance reviews this year, continuing to do that to just take some of the pressure off, offering any benefits that they can around supporting flexibility and, and the extra needs and the lack of relevance of existing benefits. Like your gym isn't helping you much right now for most of us or the things that your workplace lunch hour yoga, not super helpful when you're working from home. So that kind of thing. And then all of what we talked about with compassion, the depersonalization, the, the sense of I see myself as getting stuff done. I don't acknowledge my own humanity. I'm cynical. Don't acknowledge your humanity. That's part of being burnt out and just emotionally exhausted. If we can focus on building inclusion, on building community and compassion, those also help redress the precipitants and kind of the outcome of burnout. And it's taking it off of the individuals. You know, it's not saying, hey, Kelly, well, why didn't you use your benefits? And why didn't you get more exercise and rest and eat more clean? Like kind of on you if you're burning out, like, which is the implicit message that many organizations have about well-being. Well, we offer these benefits. So on you, if you don't use them, meanwhile, there's the conditions around you make it utterly impossible to. So that's That's what we're trying to address by looking at the team level and looking at these interpersonal issues and to address them together. Finally, Leah shares how each of us can take action to demonstrate compassion at work. Let's take the opportunity for everybody to find some way to have a courageous conversation about mental health or offer support to someone that you believe might be struggling because the only way we can destigmatize is to communicate. Whatever role you're in in an organization, speaking out and using this month to like, let's try to get some traction about acknowledging the impact of mental health challenges and setting it 
if you don't have clear resources available, be an internal advocate to try to get some set up in your organization or find them in your community and be supportive and be a listener. It can be as simple as like take the five minutes to ask someone who you believe is isolated or struggling or just to ask your team to carve out 10 minutes once a week to just say, how are you? What are you holding? That's just acknowledging everybody's mental status so that you can know and support one another and get rid of the stigma right from where you live. Awareness is key to developing compassionate leadership skills. For all of us, it starts with getting a sense of how we're showing up now and then establishing what we need to do differently to create cultures of care in our teams. The 2016 report, Compassionate Leadership, What Is It and Why Do Organisations Need More of It?, provides some research-based key questions that leaders can use to evaluate if they're demonstrating compassion. These include, do I actively promote a culture in which people trust each other and know that if they talk about their problems, other team members won't judge them and will listen and try to help? Do I actively encourage and empower others to respond to a colleague's suffering? Do I show care and concern towards people in my team? Do I understand the value of sharing problems with others? Do people in my team know that I'll try to help them if they have a problem? And do people in my team feel safe in sharing their personal problems, issues and challenges with each other? I hope that you enjoyed today's episode and the insights that Leah provided and actionable steps which we can all use to be more compassionate at work. The Dalai Lama said that when we're motivated by compassion and wisdom, the results of our actions benefit everyone, not just our individual selves or some immediate convenience. This is so true in organisations where compassionate leadership is good for employees, for leaders, for customers and for business. Thank you for tuning in today. Before you go, just a quick reminder to check out the 100 Actions for Equality campaign, which provides you with 100 actions that you can take every day to create a more equal working world. Please visit 100actionsforequality.com. Thank you for tuning in to our episode. If you're interested in partnering with us or being a guest on the show, then please reach out through our website, thefixpodcast.org. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter and contribute your story there. Thanks again, and I'll catch you all again next week.